Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. Welcome back to Hermeneutics Tuesday, friends. It's been a little while. The last time we hung out, I was getting ready to leave for an on-site emotional wellness workshop in Tennessee. The week I spent there was one of the most transformative, life-giving experiences I've ever had. If you're curious, want any information about on-site, please reach out to me. I'd love to share more. You can hit me up via email at april at hergodspeaks.com. Remember, my name has an E at the end, A-P-R-I-L-E. Well, I got back right before Thanksgiving, like the day before Thanksgiving. And ever since, it's been a struggle to get back into my routine, especially since everything I do here is completely voluntary. There's no higher up telling me to get with the program and no job to lose if I don't. (laughs) But I have really missed talking about hermeneutics with you guys, and I'm ready to get back to it. Now, we're continuing our series based on John Walton's latest book, Wisdom for Faithful Reading, Principles and Practices for Old Testament Interpretation. I just want to remind you, this is not a book club. There is no assigned reading. I'm simply using the book as a guide for these segments. Today, we're going to talk about the 10th hermeneutical principle in the book, which is this. We are accountable to the author's literary intentions which constitute the affirmations of scripture. Now let's unpack that a little bit. The main point that Walton makes in this section is the importance of discerning the difference between affirmations and references in the Bible. Those two words are going to be really important in this episode, affirmations and references. Now the reason this is so important is because there are some statements in the Bible that the Bible does not affirm. I think the best way to start to get our minds around the difference between a reference and an affirmation is to think of a car with a driver in the driver's seat. All right, so the driver is the affirmation or the truth claim that the author of the passage is trying to convey. The car is the reference. It represents the words and ideas the author uses as the vehicle to convey his message. Now, here's where it gets tricky. The reference, or if we use our metaphor, the car, may or may not turn out to be true. It's merely the means by which the truth claim is conveyed. Now that you're thoroughly confused, let me throw out a few examples to hopefully bring some clarity. The first example that comes to mind is ancient Near Eastern cosmology. So 10 out of 10 scholars agree that the biblical authors believed that there is a solid sky, that the sun is moving, and that the earth is a flat disk. These beliefs are clearly reflected in Holy Scripture. This, by the way, is why flat earthers have Bible verses to back up their claims. (laughs) 
Now, fast forward to 2023 when it's common knowledge that the sky is not a solid dome, that the sun is not moving, and that the earth is not a flat disk. These are unrefuted scientific facts. So what do we do with the fact that the Bible doesn't reflect a scientifically accurate cosmology? Well, if we understand the difference between a reference and an affirmation, we don't have a problem. The affirmation or truth claim of the Bible is that God is the creator and sustainer of all that is. The references to ancient cosmology are merely the vehicle by which the biblical authors chose to drive home that affirmation. They had to use words and ideas that their audience understood. Now, while we don't embrace the biblical author's references to the shape of the earth or the movement of the sun, we do embrace their affirmation that God created both. Another example is the Bible's language indicating acceptance of the ancient idea that cognitive processes took place in the heart, liver, kidneys, and so on. As Walton puts it, this is merely a reference to how people thought back then. It does not constitute a divine message affirming a physiology that would discount the role of the brain or anything else we know to be true from modern neuroscience. The idea that the heart is the seat of human cognition is merely a vehicle to drive home certain truth claims. Again, the author had to use words and ideas that were familiar to his audience. Here are some other examples Walton gives. To save me some time, I'm quoting directly here. The Bible's focus on communal identity is reference to how people thought back then. It does not affirm a mandate that all people must find their identity in community. So no need to sell your single family home and live in a Christian commune. Next example. Both Old and New Testament operate in a world where hierarchy was valued and where women played a subservient role to men. Statements indicating such social constructs and calling for God's people to conform to them reflect references to the contemporary culture at the time and need not be taken as affirmations of how all cultures should be shaped. Next example. The practice of arranged marriages, whose purpose was producing the next generation, and the occasional necessity for polygamy are all references to how things worked in those cultures at that time. As such, they are references and should not be picked up as affirmations. References to slavery in the Bible belong in the same category. Last example. Minute details such as Jesus' claim that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, which we know is not actually the smallest seed, should be classified among the references, not among the affirmations of Scripture. It reflects how people thought then and is not a botanical claim. Now, here's what we need to understand. The Bible is inerrant in all that it affirms not in all that it references. Let me say that again. The Bible is inerrant in all that it affirms, not in all that it 
references. Now this may sound really progressive to you. I promise it's not. It's entirely consistent with the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy, which is a very conservative statement. Just wanted to clarify that if any of you are freaking out right now, please do not freak out. We are okay. All right. Let me say it again. The Bible is inerrant in all that it affirms, not in all that it references. In other words, every truth claim in the Bible is in fact true, full stop. But not every statement the biblical authors make is a truth claim. Some statements, like the ones just listed, are highly contextualized vehicles to get the truth claim where it needs to go. God accommodated his message to a particular audience living in a particular location at a particular time in a particular culture, and evidence of that divine accommodation is all over the Bible. When we open our Bibles, we are in fact opening an ancient text containing a whole lot of ancient ideas that we no longer hold One of the biggest tasks of an interpreter is sifting through those ideas to uncover the timeless affirmations. What's tricky about this is that we have to understand the references in their own context, not ours, in order to understand and articulate the affirmations. The two go hand in hand. And the reason this is tricky is because we naturally insert our own cultural assumptions. And that's a tough habit to break. Now, there's one more point that Walton makes in this section that I think is super important. I'm quoting again here. In our modern context, we often assume that the major affirmations of the Bible pertain to moral or ethical behavior and theology. Indeed, it is true that such affirmations can be found in the Bible. In fact, what we see in 2 Timothy 3.16 affirms such an inclination. All scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Nevertheless, what scripture is useful for may not be the same thing as what it was given for. Scripture unquestionably has implications for teaching doctrine and training people in right living, but it would be a mistake to consider scripture to provide a systematic theology or a comprehensive moral system. It has moral and theological insights to offer, plenty of them. But its larger and more significant message relates to communicating God's plans and purposes for the world. Those plans and purposes are initiated at creation, pursued through the covenant, demonstrated in the history of Israel, praised by the psalmist, articulated by the prophets, realized in Christ, promoted by the church, and will find their ultimate expression in new creation. God's people, whether Israel or the church, are to find their place in God's story and as eager participants in his plans and purposes. The most important affirmations of scripture are connected to its meta-narrative, its big story. A meta-narrative the writers of scripture are well aware and to which they are intentionally contributing, end quote. And here's my version of what he's saying there. Contrary to how most of us were taught to read and interpret the Bible, the affirmations of scripture cannot be conveyed in a set of bullet points. 
there are narrative passages and poems and genealogies and strange apocalyptic texts and law codes and parables and proverbs and letters. But there is no list. There is no list. This thing we call the Bible is ultimately a story. The story. Our story. The wise interpreter always keeps that in mind. Now, if you haven't quite grasped the difference between a reference and an affirmation, that's entirely normal. In my opinion, this is one of the more challenging concepts in Walton's book so far, and I'm not so sure I succeeded in communicating it well. Rest assured that this concept will keep coming back around in different ways and that your understanding will grow a little more each time we see it. If you simply take away the realization that the things reflected in the Bible that we know are not true, such as the earth is a flat disk, or that we know to be harmful, such as gender hierarchy and slavery, if you simply take away that these are not biblical affirmations or truth claims, then you're doing really good. Right? Those, those things reflect the highly contextualized means by which the author communicated what is true. That's the main idea we're trying to hit home here. As you read the Bible, you're going to come across things that make you think, hmm, I, I don't know about that. Like that straight up contradicts everything I know. <laughs> now, it may be the case that everything you know needs to change. The Bible does that to us sometimes, but more, more likely it's the case that what you have just read is a reference. It's a highly contextualized, um, grouping of, of words and ideas that the author used to convey truth to his original audience. And what you need to do is keep reading keep thinking, keep meditating, and keep searching for the, the affirmation, um, the truth claim that is riding in that vehicle. Where's the driver in the car? Like, what is the timeless truth the author was seeking to convey through those words and ideas that, you know, may not, may not be all that relevant to, to us in, in our culture. Um, so anyway, that's kind of what, it's kind of what this is all this is all getting at. Hopefully you got at least a little bit of that. If you have any questions or need more clarification, never head never hesitate to shoot me an email. Again, it's April at hergodspeaks.com. April with an E, A-P-R-I-L-E. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. It was so good to be back with you guys. I'll see you next Tuesday, Lord willing. All right.